This is Undisciplined. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. At the start of the pandemic, there wasn't nearly enough COVID tests to meet demand. And if you did get tested, you might have to wait a week or more to get your results. And now with the spread of the highly contagious Delta variant, testing remains integral in the containing the spread of the virus. Today, we're talking about a new and potentially more efficient way to parse COVID-19 test results. It allows labs to test multiple samples at once without sacrificing accuracy. It uses a mathematical model called Bayesian inference. This is the subject of a recent study by an interdisciplinary group of researchers at the University of Utah. Joining me now to discuss their findings are Rodrigo Noriega. He is an assistant professor of chemistry, Dr. Matthew Seymour. He's the chief of the Division of Epidemiology and Dr. Kim Hansen, Professor of Medicine and Pathology at the U as well. She's also the Section Head of Clinical Microbiology at ARUP Laboratories. Rodrigo Noriega, Matthew Seymour, and Kim Hansen, thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. Okay, so I'm going to start off with um, you, Rodrigo. Can you sort of give us a brief explanation of this new way of analyzing test results works and how it's different than we've been processing COVID test results now? Well, the, the main difference here is that it uses an algorithm to organize samples into pools. Pools are groups of samples that contain a portion of different specimens. And sample pooling is something that's been done in the past, but the novelty and the approach that we have is that by arranging them in a specific pattern, multiple dimensions, and using the information of all the various tests in a particular way that tells you information about the samples that it contains, then you can update your probability that you're that you're assessing for each sample to be positive or negative. And then in one single go, you're able to extract not just which ones are negative, but those that are positive as well. Yeah. And so this is a question to everyone, but how did the three of you sort of come together to do this study? So who initiated this collaboration and why did you decide to embark on this type of research? Yeah, this is Kim. You know, I think Matt is the one that connected all of us. And I can say from the clinical laboratory side, we've been really interested in trying to find ways to more rapidly screen a large number of samples collected from individuals, either with symptoms or without symptoms of COVID, but just to get them processed through the lab in a more rapid fashion and also do it in a way that could potentially reduce costs. And um, Matt, I think it was you that must have thought of Rodrigo and connected us to consider using mathematical modeling instead of the way that pooling is traditionally done. And we can talk more about that as well. Yes. Uh, um, Rodrigo is the origin of the idea and the developer of the method. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think Rodrigo um, reached out to me you know, as an epidemiologist and as a, an infectious disease physician to assess my interests. And then I think I connected him to you, Kim. But you know the motivation for this, as you were saying, came from you know the the fact that um, you know the biggest problem that we were encountering early in the pandemic was the uh, lack of access to testing and the realization that you know this was uh, leading to you know significant undercounting of cases and delayed uh, recognition of cases 
for uh, infection prevention and uh, contact tracing. And so this was a, a technique that um, was very high interest to public health. I had a number of inquiries from the CDC about our project. And I, as I recall, Dr. Noriega gave a presentation to the CDC about some of the early test results. Yeah. And so why Bayesian inference? Why does this model make sense for COVID testing? And if you could briefly explain what is Bayesian inference and why is this a good model for analyzing? So Bayes theorem is a way of thinking about probability that in a way it feels somewhat foreign, but it also in a very intuitive way, it feels very clear. And that is something that you update your a prior assumption with the input that you get from new data. And that is why this is a good way of analyzing the type of data that we have here, because what you're doing is you start with an overall baseline for all the samples. And then as you get the analysis of each one of the test results that contain information from a subset of those samples, then you can say if the test is negative, then the samples that are part of that pool are more likely to be negative than positive now than they were before uh, you got that information. So you kind of update your assumptions that you have from the beginning and you get to a final point where in order to make it a diagnostic, what we have is we have a threshold, right? If you have a probability higher than a particular threshold of saying that a sample is positive, you can assign it as being positive. And if not, then it's negative. Rodrigo, would you agree that, and Kim, I'm interested to hear what both of you say about this. I mean, one thing I've been thinking about is, you know, how it might work rather than present a result as being either positive or negative, you know, provide the posterior probability as the reportable outcome of the test. I think it's an interesting to speculate about how that type of information would be consumed um, by both the individual being tested and the providers who are interpreting the test results you know, in their patients, for example, or in the population that's being tested. Yeah, I think that's a really great question, Matt. And I, I think clinicians and, and probably you know patients and individuals as well don't always have a good understanding of what a posterior probability is exactly. And right. so trying to craft that concept in a way that's understandable um, to the general population and, you know, clinicians would be really important. And I think I've also found people don't like to do a lot of reading when it's attached to a, a laboratory result. So, you know, thinking about more creative ways to deliver results in an enhanced fashion, whether it could be a little video or a blurb or something you could connect to on the internet if you had a smartphone. But if it involves a lot of reading of a laboratory report, sometimes that information is not picked up or missed by you know busy providers, especially in the clinic. Yeah. Kim, can you explain a little bit about what the sort of details of this sort of testing that a traditional test wouldn't have in terms of likelihood of having the virus? What is that additional information that a patient may receive from a test like this? Yeah. So right now they would just get the result either positive or negative. Mm -hmm. um, but using Rodrigo's algorithm and Bayesian inference, it's more of a, a probability that the test is positive. It's not a definitive 
this is positive or negative. And, you know, Rodrigo chime in here too, but, you know, one of the big benefits of the algorithm is because the algorithm assesses different combinations of pools of samples and individual samples may be tested multiple times, that the modeling and the mathematics can tell us what's the probability that that sample is positive. Because we've looked at it a variety of different ways in combination with other samples on our test run. And what's different about the way traditional pooling is done is in traditional pooling, we would say, take five individuals who've had a swab for SARS-CoV-2. We take those swabs or kind of the fluid that the swab was collected in and sent to the lab. And we take aliquots or little samples of the individual samples and combine them in a pool of five. And then we run that pool of five on our instrument. And the instrument says, oh, yep, there is SARS-CoV-2 you know, RNA, nucleic acid in the sample this pool of samples, but we can't tell you which of the five it's in. Mm -hmm. So traditionally, we would go back, look up who were the five patients in this pool, go find their samples again, take aliquots and run them individually to figure out which one of the five or multiples of the five were positive. But with Rodrigo's method, we don't have to go back and waste all of our time trying to find the sample again, doing additional pipetting, repeating the testing, that it's all handled with the modeling itself. So in theory, it could save the lab a lot of time, effort, and cost by generating a result, not having to go back to deconvolute the pool and confirm who in the pool was positive. And correct me if I'm wrong, Kim, as well, the storage is also not harmless to the samples, right? You could you could lose some of the sample material by the in the freeze thaw cycles. Yes, that's true as well. The uh, virus is an RNA virus and we know the more you freeze thaw the sample, you could have some degradation of the virus itself. Mm -hmm. And you know, sometimes we just don't get a large volume of sample and when we try to go back to it, it's been exhausted. So being able to run the sample in multiple iterations one time is a, a savings to the laboratory. Yeah. And so when you say savings, is it a savings in terms of time, money, accuracy of the testing? Um, theoretically, time and money would be the big <laughs> savings. <laughs> but the complexities are kind of tracking which patients were in which of the various pools and matching it all up in the end to generate a probability. Um, so some of what was difficult for us when we were performing this project was having to do a lot of this by hand. Mm -hmm. um, and if we were to bring it into the lab in the future, talking with Matt and Rodrigo, you know, one thing a clinical laboratory could do is use more automated robotics for their sample handling and try to connect the mathematical algorithm to our laboratory information system so it could all be handled kind of seamlessly without a lot of hands-on time from the laboratorians themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's really amazing when you think about the volume of SARS-CoV testing that's been done. Um, I mean, you know, millions of tests just in the state of Utah alone. Yeah, and so what would it take to get this type of technology into labs in Utah or around the country? Or is this, like, would this be able to be used? Right now we're going through, we're seeing a surge in COVID cases. The Delta variant is, you know, more contagious. And obviously 
we're going to need to, you know, ramp up testing as well. Is this something that could get rolled out within this current pandemic? Or is this something that potentially would be implemented later down the road? Depends on the scale, right? Mm -hmm. Because you could have small scale groups of sample that are flagged for pool testing. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing that has been really beneficial to work with clinicians because they're like, well, we want to use this for a particular set of samples where you need to know specifically with a high degree of accuracy whether this particular patient that's going to have surgery tomorrow is positive or negative, right? So um, in that sense, I would say it depends on the scale at which you want to implement it, but the robotics are there. It would just be the time that it takes to install it and, and devote some lab space to it. Right? So it also has to do with the limited amount of space and cost and there's all the other tests that have to undergo in a particular laboratory right so it's just it's a balance with all of that and in addition for the the clinical lab we would have to validate and show that we've figured out what the optimal pool size is Mm -hmm. when you combine samples they dilute one another out and you could potentially reduce your sensitivity to detect a virus in a you know large pool of samples. So we would have to perform, or labs considering doing pooling, really have to perform a validation to show that they haven't lost a significant amount of sensitivity by pooling. And the FDA has actually issued guidance for um, labs considering doing pooling protocols, kind of targets that you need to hit to maintain your overall sensitivity. So I think the FDA says something of, you know, at least a sensitivity compared with single testing on the order of 85% or better. And Rodrigo can talk to this, but his model, because individual samples are interrogated multiple times, actually can improve sensitivity just by virtue of multiples of testing. So you might want to talk about that too, Rodrigo. I thought that was one of the coolest things that came out of the project. Yeah, so uh, thanks, Kim. I agree. That's one of the one of the highlights, right? That by increasing the number of dimensions in which you're grouping samples, so you can think of this as no pooling. Every sample is a dot, and you have to test all of them. One dimensional pooling, you line up samples, and every line is one one pool, and you test each one of those. And two dimensionals, you arrange them in a, in a matrix, in a square, and you test along columns and along rows, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And you can see how it can extend to a cube, but then our minds can't really picture this. Uh, so it's good that this is audio, um, but, <laughs> but you, can, you can go to more dimensions. You can go to four or five uh, more dimensions, right? That arbitrary number. The good thing is that every dimension that you're grouping samples in gives you more information per sample. You test each sample a number of times equal to the number of dimensions in which you're pooling. The caveat to that is that because you're increasing the number of tests, you're also decreasing the amount of efficiency that gains uh, that the algorithm gains uh, by by pooling, right? So you you increase the amount of information that you get, uh, but you can also decrease the the gains in efficiency. So there's definitely a balance there. But what you can get is by virtue of testing each sample multiple times and using all of that information to get to a result of a posterior probability of your final assessment of the probability of a sample being positive or negative. But then what that means is that you reduce the likelihood of having false positives 
and you're also potentially increasing for a particular range of settings in the protocol to have a, for example, the prevalence in the sample, the uh, in, in the population, the prevalence of the disease in the population, the size of the sample, et cetera, the dimensionality of the algorithm, you can increase the actual sensitivity and find more of the actual true positives than you would if you were testing each sample individually just once. Because for imperfect tests, you get always a chance of having the true positive or the true negative, but also false positives and false negatives. And that's something that multidimensional algorithms like this coupled with Bayesian inference are, are good to test out. Yeah, I think we've definitely heard reports of people getting false negatives of COVID tests and then people, you know, requiring multiple tests. And right now, obviously, there's a big focus on encouraging people to get tested now that we're having this surge again um, among unvaccinated people and some breakthrough cases as a result of the Delta variant. So where do we stand now in terms of access to testing and the turnaround times for testing? Because I know in the beginning, it was like, you know, really hard to get tests. It was really inefficient. Where do we stand right now? I mean, we really were stressed at the very beginning of the pandemic with shortages on test kits, shortages on swabs, shortages on transport media. And the good news is um, that's largely been resolved. And the other kind of advance now is, you know, I've lost count of how many different test manufacturers have tests. Uh, both tests that detect the virus itself, but newer tests that are more rapid and cheaper called antigen tests, which detect viral proteins. And so we know that the molecular tests detecting the virus itself with the nucleic acid amplification tests, those tests are more sensitive, but the antigen tests are cheaper and more rapid and more easy to deploy at the point of care. So I think folks have really strategized about what's the best test for an individual scenario. We think, you know, for symptomatic patients, an antigen test could give you an answer very quickly, but because it's less sensitive, if it's negative, it doesn't necessarily rule it out. So we still are preferring molecular tests, especially for folks um, who have symptoms or in situations where the stakes are pretty high, like Rodrigo mentioned, you're being admitted to the hospital, you're going in for surgery, those sorts of situations. And I think now access to molecular tests is easier, but one of the things that's actually limiting now is um, at the height of the pandemic over the winter, we would had spun up you know, multiple testing sites, drive-through testing at large venues. You didn't need an appointment. You could just show up, come in, and get tested. Once the numbers started to fall, a lot of those centers were shut down, and the staff that was working there redeployed back to their regular jobs. And so now most of the testing, you can still get it through the health department or various health agencies. Um, still free, but is requiring an appointment and, um, you know, potentially not as convenient, not as many places open on the weekend, um, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we're at the point now where we're really thinking about, are we going to have to spin up these larger testing centers again? Because it's pretty clear it was very convenient for a while, but now has become less convenient. That said, we've got the the supplies. So that's good. Yeah. And so this Bayesian testing model that 
sort of has all these really amazing potential for COVID testing. Could this be taken and used for other types of screening for other viruses or diseases? Or is this model, you know, currently being used for other things? The algorithm, in a way, is totally agnostic about what it is that it's testing, right? Um, And it can be deployed in any sort of testing in which you have a way of combining samples into one specimen that goes through a particular interrogation to get an answer. So it could be for other viruses. It could be for other kinds of clinical and diagnostics tests. It also needs to fall within a particular set of guidelines. So if the test is not very accurate, then pooling is going to dilute the sample and it's going to lower that accuracy. And then you're not going to get any useful information out of each test that you perform. Right. So uh, starting with with really high accuracy tests is really, really important. I think, I mean, you know, so going back to one of the earlier questions, Shoshana, um, I, I think that this technology is now, you know, much more likely to be deployed with a future emerging pathogen. I mean, I think when you have an innovation, it takes a while to be adopted. And you have to work out the methods, you have to do validation, et cetera. And this paper is an important step along that way. And, you know, there's going to be more emerging pathogens and there may, there will likely be, you know, new pandemics in the future. And so I think in the future pandemic and the future emerging pathogen, it'll be important to have the testing, access to testing and the ability to, to ramp up testing available at a much earlier time, at a much earlier point. And I think this technology can really help in that regard. Yeah, and I think um, what you were saying um, kind of led me to my final question that I'll have Rodrigo and Kim also answer is, what do you hope is sort of the next steps for it? And then Matthew, we can circle back to you if you have final closing thoughts as well. My hope is that it turns out to be useful. That is basically the, the whole motivation behind this. It was really engaging to think about all the all the coding and the the actual application of it. But at the end of the day, what's really important is that anything that we come up with is it's really applicable. And I feel like the discussions that we had bringing together clinical microbiologists, epidemiologists, uh, and chemists uh, is something that, that really helped shape this work into something that could potentially be useful. And Kim, what about you? What do you hope this spurs? I think, you know, it opens the door for testing for a lot of different infectious diseases where we need to analyze a large number of samples rapidly and be able to issue, you know, a determination with high confidence. And one of the cool things about the algorithm is it gives you a sense of what the probability is that the sample really was positive or negative to begin with. So I would love to see it move forward. And we were talking about, you know, use scenarios from the diagnostic clinical laboratory perspective. I think there are other diseases for which this is applicable. And I think next steps for us would be to, you know, really try to get it in the hands of the laboratory, get all the pieces validated and prove that um, in clinical practice, it works as good as we think that it did in our kind of pilot research study. 
Yeah. And Matthew, do you have any final sort of um, takeaways about this research and what you hope um, this might lead to in the future? Well, I hope this improves people's recognition of uh, Reverend Bayes, that Bayes is, is, you know, that we should always be thinking of, of, of the Bayes you know, theorem when we interpret a results of laboratory tests, even when uh, done in, 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 tr in the traditional single sample way. You know, so that, you know, a negative test does not always mean that a person does not have the disease and a positive test Likewise, does not always mean that the person has the disease. So understanding the, you know, the role of test error and the role of the Bayes theorem in interpreting test results is, is an important lesson that can be drawn from this work. I've just been talking with three University of Utah researchers, Rodrigo Noriego, he's an assistant professor of chemistry, Dr. Matthew Seymour, he's the chief of the Division of Epidemiology, and Dr. Kim Hansen, professor of medicine and pathology at the U as well. She's also the section head of clinical microbiology at ARUP Laboratories. They are co-authors of a recently published study in the Journal of the Royal Society Interface, Rodrigo, Matthew, and Kim. Thank you so much for being here. I've learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you, Shoshana. Thanks. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio with support from the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcast. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Shoshana Buxbaum. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.